Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio manager Sri Tella joins us on the program to provide his outlook on the bond market as the year comes to a close and how he's positioning his portfolio heading into 2023. Shri says overall, the outlook for the bond market is still uncertain for the next six to nine months. He adds there is a lot of volatility right now, so he's taking a more defensive position, focusing on good cash flow and strong, stable businesses. Shri also discusses the Bank of Canada's upcoming rate announcement and inflation concerns. He says the pace of rate increase is likely to slow down, but rates will still go higher. The big disconnect going forward is that the market is expecting some sense of pivot through the next year for rates to fall. But he says rates will stay elevated for an extended period of time. Regarding inflation, Shri says it should temper over the next year. The core and the month-over-month numbers will remain sticky, but we should see the main headline CPI number come down. The real question is, where will it stand in the next 6-9 to months? Does it get back to 2% or stay elevated at the 4% range? This podcast was recorded on December 2, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start big picture. Now, December 7th is the last rate announcement of the year by the Bank of Canada. Um, What are you looking for? What are some scenarios that you could see maybe playing out uh, on that day? Well, I think um, I think the Bank of Canada has done uh, done a good job of of um, setting expectations for the market, and I think we're at what we're what I'm kind of expecting for the next meeting is basically messaging that um, rate hikes have uh, rate hikes to date have done a lot of what the bank's been looking for um, in slowing down the economy, um, helping to temper inflation. Um, uh, but yet there's still a lot of work to be done. And it's the same message we're getting out of the Federal Reserve in the U.S. as well. Um, but that rates, so the pace of rate increases are likely to uh, slow down, but yet rates will still go higher. And um, and I think one of the other things that we'll be focusing on as it comes out is, is what's the path uh, as we get to these higher rates? Um, how long will we stay there? And I think that's where the bigger disconnect is going forward is that the market is expecting some sense of a, a pivot through the next year for rates to fall. Um, but, uh, but the central banks are kind of have been pushing back against that and kind of implying that rates will likely stay elevated for an extended period of time. They may not keep rising, but they're likely to stay at a higher level. And I, I wonder, do you think, um, you know, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada, will they sort of continue on a similar path or does the Bank of Canada do something different from the Federal Reserve as we kind of get into next year? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, generally, if you look back over history, the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve are, are move fairly close to one another, uh, largely because the economies are very linked. However, um, 
there have been periods of time where policy needs to differ and has differed. You can look back to 2015 when oil prices disproportionately impacted Canada. Um, but in, in the current environment, I think given um, the leverage of the Canadian consumer and how much more tied the economy is to housing and how sensitive that housing market is more sensitive in Canada to higher rates, I think what we're likely to see is that the, the Bank of Canada doesn't need to raise rates as much as the Federal Reserve. And you're starting to see that priced into markets where in Canada, the, the terminal rate is expected to be maybe another 50 basis points higher in the low fours, four and a quarter, um, whereas in the U.S. it's expected to be closer to 5%. And I think that so the combination of uh, the Bank of Canada starting slightly earlier in tightening policy, but also the sensitivity of Canadians to the housing market and interest rates more so than in the U.S. will mean that the Bank of Canada is likely not going to need to raise rates as much as the Federal Reserve. Um, but there is a limit to how much they can diverge because there's a lot of other implications. So what happens? I mean, if, if we see that divergence, what does that mean for, for Canada? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the biggest thing you need to th we need to think about, I, for one, uh, one of the reasons I guess I'll go back to the part of the divergence is that when the federal, with the U.S. raising rates, that uh, automatically has implications on Canada. So one of the reasons as well that Canada doesn't need to be as aggressive. But uh, the bigger issue is, I think, is when it starts to impact the currency. If those policy rates diverge by too much, then that potentially has a, a, a knock-on effect to weakening the Canadian dollar, which you know, a weaker dollar can be good in certain aspects to make, um, you know, our exports uh, more attractive. Um, but at the same time, when you're looking at, a, a, at, at inflation and uh, a weaker dollar makes it more expensive for Canadians to, to buy things that are imported. And so and, and so that's a feed through. But the biggest thing is wanting to keep the currency in sort of a tighter range. And, and that's if there's a big divergence, that's when it starts to cause problems for the Bank of Canada. Does inflation start to moderate at some point soon? I mean, it's Friday, I'm going to make steak tonight, but those things are getting expensive. Uh, wh where, where do you see that have going in 2023? Yeah, so uh, I mean, by uh, just by pure math alone, uh, inflation should temper over the next year. So, you know, we've, we're coming off, um, if you look at year ago numbers and how high inflation was, um, just the, um, even if we keep at a, a monthly pace that's consistent and not going down, just uh, the year over year numbers should naturally drop. And so, you know, we've already started seeing that from a peak of uh, over 8% to just under 7% more recently, and we're, we'll continue to get more data in the coming weeks. Um, and uh, and so we should see the headline number come down. That being said, the core and the month over month numbers have still been fairly sticky. And so um, we should see the, the, the main headline CPA number come down. But the real question six to nine months from now is, does it get back to 2%, which is what the Bank of Canada would love to see? Or does it stay elevated in kind of that 3 to 4% range? Obviously, moving to 4% from 8 is a positive but it's still above what the Bank of Canada would like. And so that's part of the reason why we could see rates stay somewhat elevated. Um, housing, I mean, naturally everybody is focused on that in Canada. Um, what is the impact that you're seeing on, on higher rates and the housing market and, and housing is such a big part of our economy. So what could the implications be if things slow down? Yeah, I mean, we're already starting to see it show up in the data. Obviously the biggest has been in housing activity. So not 
we've we've obviously seen house prices come down as well, but the biggest move so far has been in 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 resales and sales of housing that have come down sharply um, because of how much interest rates have gone up and the fact that the set the sensitivity of 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 borrowers to higher payments and and affordability has already been a concern for a number of years in Canada, and so. So higher rates will have an impact on house prices and housing activity, and we've already started to see that. Um, you know, it's it's likely that we'll see further pressure going forward, just given um, it's more expensive for new home buyers. It's uh, it's going to be more costly for refinancing your mortgages, and so more money is going to be going into housing. But what we do, what I do think, is that while we'll see housing temper and prices probably come down. Um, uh, my base case is not really a a, um, a a housing crash per se. I mean, keeping you have to keep in mind that prices went up as much as 50% in the last couple of years. So even if we see prices come down 10 to 20% over the next little while, there's still a lot of equity built up, and so people have have value in their houses still. What the 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 big knock-on effect to the economy is really more if you're spending more for your mortgage, you're spending more for your stake that you're going to have tonight then that means you're going to have less money to spend on other things. And so the, so the, the, the base case is really it's going to impact discretionary spending because more of your money is going towards essentials. And that's where the knock-on effect and the slowdown in the economy will occur. There's a we already we already have a question from an advisor, and I was thinking this as well. Uh, the question is, is it possible that central banks have overshot on the upside with rates uh, and, and uh, like how they did on the downside during COVID. I mean, maybe that could be up for debate, but um, have they overshot it? And, and that sort of was leading to me a question that we had talked about earlier was just, um, what is the rate? Like, I think for the last 10 years, a lot of people um, have gotten used to very low rates. I was just like the conversations I have with my friends about their mortgages, like they can't believe we're going to 5%. When I bought my first house, it was 5%. Um, and that was already, you know, on its way down. So um, I guess did did maybe the central bank overshoot? What do you think about that? And and um, what should the expectation be from people around rates? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I mean the the easy answer to say is that um, we won't know whether they overshot until we get you know six to twelve months from now and see what the impact is on the economy. Um, I think part of the uh, perceived overshooting or the the aggressiveness is is that they maybe started raising rates a little bit later than um, they should have, and that's you know there was a lot of people that um, viewed inflation as transitory, and there's a number of reasons that 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 they had there was some, a number of good reasons why people thought that, um, but you know now we're starting to realize the things that were missed, but uh, in terms of persistence of inflation, and I think that. The overshooting, um, I guess, yes, in the sense that it will slow down the economy and you will, there will be a hit to, um, to growth. But I, I, I would, I would say that, you know, at this point in time, the overshoot is, I, I wouldn't quite call it overshooting in terms of rates because employment is still strong. Um, and, you know, the bank, the central banks won't, uh, they won't ever come out and say this, but they need unemployment to go up. They need the economy to slow down. You know, the Bank of Canada's forecasts have very low growth. I don't think they really want to be in the business of forecasting a recession, um, but they would they want to see a mild recession or maybe a couple of quarters of, of negative growth. That would probably help them on the inflation front. And so I think the focus is so is solely on inflation at this point, and there's a lot of cushion in the employment numbers. In fact, we got 
decent numbers in Canada today. We got another strong print in the U.S. this morning. Um, and so I think until we start to see that turn down a little bit, the the, the central focus is going to be on inflation. Um, and turning to your second question about where what's the ultimate rate, um, you know, we have to keep in mind that, you know, zero or one percent rates were around for emergency measures. And and we've been in a low rate environment for the past, you know, 13, 14 years since the financial crisis. There was have been a number of crises through the period that have resulted in low rates. So unless we feel that we're going to be in a permanent crisis going forward, you know, we're, we are unlikely to see rates be back consistently at such low levels. Now, at the same time, we've already starting to see that four or five percent rates, um, four percent in the overnight and five percent in, in other fixed in other fixed income markets are starting to be restrictive from an economic standpoint. So, so where's the right level? It's probably somewhere in between. I think, you know, the Bank of Canada likes to sort of think of it as maybe two and a half to three and a half percent. Um, the Federal Reserve has targeted a long run rate of two and a half percent. Um, I think those are realistic assumptions. You know, when do we get there? That could still take some time, but that's likely, uh, you know, somewhere in that range is probably realistic. So let's uh, move into bonds. Now, uh, you know, for the last several years, being a bond manager was difficult. Um, now, uh, I, I feel like you may be having a little more fun as a bond manager. How has the uh, environment shifted for you? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's, yeah, it's no surprise that uh, the last, uh, the last year has been a tough one for bonds, as you said in the in your introduction. You know, it's been the worst year on record, um, and I think we've got our first slide. First slide we can uh, put up and show to, to folks. But um, you know, the returns on fixed income have been, you know, we year to date we're looking at uh, double digit negative returns. Um, but the on the bright side, we're now at yield levels that are much more attractive. If you look back at this chart, I think this is a great chart to show that generally fixed income um, has positive returns. Um, there are very few years of negative returns. And in fact, if you look at this, obviously, there's this is the only the first time where we've had back to back negative returns. And, and that's really just because of when the rate normalization happened. The, the thing that's exciting now going forward is if you think about the, the, the part of the reason we've had such large negative returns is one, the rapid increase in rates, which is obvious because when rates go up, bond prices go down. But the, the, the bigger issue is really where we started from. When you have sub 1% yields, you have no income on fixed income. You're not earning anything. And, and that income and yield is usually what protects you in a volatile environment or when rates go higher. Now we're looking at yields that are two to three percent higher, almost double where they were at the beginning of the year. Um, if you're looking at sort of the broad fixed income um, uh, index, and uh, and so now you're actually earning something on your fixed income investments that provide a cushion. So when you're earning one percent and rates go up by a hundred basis points, you're, you're you know you're obviously wiping out more than what you've earned on on your bonds. But when you're looking at yields of four to five percent. And uh, and you're at a much higher rate level, you can even withstand a further increase in rates and still have positive returns in fixed income. And then I think we've got another slide looking at um, the uh, just the spread markets and credit markets. And you can see now this is as of the end of uh, October. So this month we've seen yields come down a little bit and uh, and spreads tighten. But uh, as you can see, if you're really focusing on the bottom numbers, the, the percentile ranks of where we are in yields and spreads, 
we are at the cheapest levels or close to the cheapest levels we've been over the last, uh, since the financial crisis, essentially. And so what this tells me is that there's a lot of yield and income that you can earn. Um, and so on a longer term basis, fixed income looks very attractive. Now, there's a lot of volatility and caution to be warranted in the short term, but it's hard to time the markets. And given where we are from a historical standpoint and the fact that you're earning some um, income to protect against volatility, it uh, makes fixed income look a lot more attractive. How do you know as a, as a manager sort of um, you don't want to time the market, but we do know, I mean, it's pretty safe to say that the Bank of Canada is probably going to raise rates again, as you've mentioned. Um, so how do you sort of approach maybe that near term buying of bonds? If you know that rates are still going to rise a bit, you can get a better yield uh, maybe, you know, in a week from now. Um, how, how do you kind of manage that in your portfolio as to kind of when and where to buy into? So, um, yeah, like a caveat it with the answer with obviously uh, as a fixed income manager, I have to be invested in fixed income regardless of, of sort of the outlook. But but we do have ways of managing around, um, you know, our our what our outlook is. And so, for example, um, but the other thing we have to keep in mind is where we think rates are going from an overnight basis and what's priced into the markets already. So if you look at, for example, the overnight rate being um, three and three quarters percent, and then the two-year north of 4%. And, and so you look at, obviously, there's a, there are right hikes priced in over the next little while, which, so we have to look at what we think the Bank of Canada will do versus what's already priced in, because if they don't do as much as what's priced in, then there's actually an opportunity for rates to go lower in what we invest in. Now, the other side, though, is if we do think rates are going higher, we, we sort of approach it from a break-even standpoint, as I mentioned. So if we're looking at 1% yields and we think rates are going to go up 100 basis points, you're going to want to be underweight on the duration front, own shorter duration bonds. If you are earning 4% and you think rates are going up 25 basis points, that 4% is going to more than offset what you're, uh, what you're going to lose in, in, in price terms for the yield coming down. So I think that's a, a real benefit of where we are right now. But at the same time, if we, given that we're cautious right now, on the near-term outlook, even though bonds look attractive from a longer-term basis, um, you know we favor shorter-duration bonds um, in terms of corporate bonds because uh, those um, they, they can withstand bigger spread widening. Um, we can adjust on points on the yield curve, and what we're trying to do is identify opportunities for specific names or or um, securities that will outperform even in a rising rate environment, and so. Um, the key is to when you're investing over a long time horizon is to minimize the downside when you have these periods of volatility and then maximize sort of the returns when you have positive markets. Um, so on those opportunities, uh, maybe we can dig into some of that a bit. Uh, I guess government versus corporate, maybe we can start there and then we can talk more about sectors. Um, but but on those two, what, what's looking attractive? Yeah, so I think um, the, um, I mean, as we showed on that second slide, you know, credit spreads do look attractive on a, <clears throat> excuse me, on a longer term basis, but um, but there's going to be a lot of volatility. You know, we could potentially head, be heading into a recession. Uh, rate volatility is difficult on corporates and on corporate bonds. Um, but that being said, you know, I think you want to be invested in corporate bonds for the longer term because of where valuations are. And also, given how much rates have come up, 
all these bonds are trading at discounts. So you know you're going to get paid par, assuming you're invested in the right names and, and not worried about a default. So that's that's kind of the key. So I think corporate bonds do look attractive. Um, but thinking about government sector, provincial bonds are also a great spot to be right now. Uh, if you look at provincial finances are much better than expected. Um, they've gotten a big tailwind from nominal growth. Um, their, their deficits are falling. In many cases, uh, provinces are reporting surpluses. They're not going to need to borrow as much money going forward. Um, so provincial bonds look great on that perspective in the, I'd say in the next year or so. Now, of course, if we're heading into a recession, that's something to watch for if borrowing is going to start picking back up a year from now. Um, but, but in the near term, provincial bonds look good. And then on the corporate side, um, you know, a couple of areas we like are, um, uh, you know, financials, the Canadian banks have had some, some technical reasons for spreads widening disproportionately in high quality bank paper. Um, so that's a sector that we like uh, on a longer term basis. Um, and then uh, other defensive sort of defensive areas like uh, utilities and infrastructure, airports. Um, those are other spread sectors where um, that, that look relatively attractive. Um, and then, you know, you also have the benefit of sort of, for example, in the airport sector that um, of uh, uh, still benefiting from the reopening of COVID and, and traffic increasing. Um, that being said, even sectors that are out of favor, like real estate, um, you know, there's going to be pockets or certain names that are strong performers within within those spaces. So we're really focusing a lot on individual companies and names that are be outperformers um, in, a, in a tough uh, economic environment. So what, what would be the characteristics of a strong company that you'd be interested in? Um, you know, even if you're looking in some of these sectors that may be out of favor, like what, what makes for a good business? Yeah. So something obviously with stable cash flows, um, relatively low leverage and high liquidity. Um, you know, we've proven in his through history that the real stress cases that during crisis periods is when um, you know, you might have a very good company and Lehman was probably a perfect example of this back in the financial crisis, strong, big company, but they just had liquidity issues. They, they didn't have the money handy to, to pay the bill that was due the next day, uh, even though they had a lot of, um, uh, 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 they had a lot of a big, they were a very large corporation, right? So, so even, and this is something we spent a lot of time, especially through COVID, was thinking about what companies um, have appropriate cash on hand, access to capital, even when things get tough. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, and so so that's kind of the things we focus on: good cash flow, uh, strong, stable businesses. Um, you know that have um, a steady business um, uh, business operations even through volatile economic times. And and a perfect example in real estate. So obviously people are concerned about real estate, but if you look at uh, REIT company REITs that have uh, grocery anchored um, strip centers as kind of their primary asset they invest in. So think about Loblaws, Sobeys, Metro, any of those stores. And, um, you know, regardless of the economic environment, your people are going to shop. For example, go back to the steak example, you're going to probably go to one of those places to get your steak. Um, or at least a lot of people would, right? So, so those are businesses that will have stable cash flows even through a tough economic period. And so, uh, as long as those companies are operated properly with low leverage and have liquidity, then you know th those are that's an example of a, a good asset in a in a bad sector. 
So, so uh, you know, taking all this into consideration, what you just said, how are you positioning your portfolio in today's environment? Are you making any changes or what are you keeping the same? Yeah, so we, um, I guess we still, as I mentioned, we like corporate bonds. So we do continue to have uh, a weighting and allocation and overweight to the corporate sector um, and, and as well as provincial bonds for the reasons I mentioned before. But within, because the outlook is still uncertain over this next six to nine months, and we're seeing a lot of volatility in the market, you know, we want to be invested in these sectors because long term they look attractive. Um, but that being said, we're more defensive in our positioning. So, for example, we've reduced uh, triple B exposure and moved into single A and double A exposure. And part of that is like favoring the Canadian banks, which are much more stable um, credits and, and, and moving away from from uh, lower rated credits with high leverage. Because as I mentioned, if we get into a recessionary period, it's the highly levered companies that will really start to struggle. So, um, and so while we're not concerned about, you know, defaults and will tick up, but uh, we're not worried about any um, massive spike over the next, uh, in the near term. And so, um, but we wanna be cognizant of what it means for market valuation. So it's, it's keeping an overweight to spread product, but being uh, more defensive in the names and sectors that we hold. Uh, you know, a lot, a lot changes in a year. Um, at the beginning of this year, the 60-40 portfolio was dead. Uh, you know, 60-40 is dead. That was the that was the headlines. Now, 60-40 is back. Um, is it back? Should advisors now be considering adding more bonds into a balanced portfolio than they may have a year ago? Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that definitely that that would be the case. Of course, I'm biased being a fixed income manager. But if you go back to the start of the year, um, you know, it's hard to make the case when bonds are yielding one, one and a half percent that uh, for them to compete with any other asset class. But when you're looking at four and a half, five percent and in an environment where, you know, we could be facing some growth headwinds, that makes fixed income a much more attractive opportunity. The other thing is. You know, if you look at yields on fixed income from the beginning of the year versus now, they compete more with other asset classes. You know, the dividend yields on equities um, and even, you know, people move to private assets um, and that's still alternatives are, are a big draw. Um, and yeah, alternatives have a place in a portfolio as well. But, um, you know, the the sectors and the, the areas they invest in um, are going to be challenged with a much higher rate environment. And so it, it kind of shows you the role that bonds have in an overall portfolio. Um, you know, at 1%, like I said, it was hard to argue that there's um, a, a hedge in there for a risk aversion because there's not much for bonds to rally when they're at those levels. But now that we've moved to much more attractive pricing levels, um, they, they clearly uh, are back to being, um, you know, playing the role that they do in, in a diversified portfolio. We've talked a lot about Canadian bonds, but where, what, what, what sort of room does maybe international bonds, U.S. bonds uh, have in that diversification? Is it enough to stick with the Canadian market or do advisors need to look elsewhere to complement their Canadian allocation to fixed income? I mean, I think that, so, I mean, just to be fair, I focus predominantly on Canadian and the Canadian markets. But that being said, uh, I mean, I think a diversified portfolio makes sense. But if you look at um, you know, Canada and let's say North America um, is being a more stable sort of um, market right now. Obviously, Europe has a lot of issues with uh, the impact of Russia, Ukraine and energy prices and um, and inflation there. Um, 
and then um, you know around the once you move outside of into sort of more emerging markets that you're introducing a lot more volatility so there's obviously a spot for to, to pick, there's spots you want to pick and choose but um, you know Canada's been a good place with in terms of uh, stability and growth I mean it's still leading the G7 in 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 uh, in growth and um, and the prospects for Canada going forward are strong um, but uh, uh, and you're also you within the Canadian market, you actually have opportunities of foreign issuers that have been tapping the Canadian market. And so there are definitely some good opportunities within Canada. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, always uh, diversification across geographies is a, is a good thing. But uh, for Canadian investors who want to sort of stay invested in the domestic market, I think Canadian fixed income um, is as attractive as any uh, any any of the other markets. We're almost, we're almost done, and I, but I'm just wondering about currency. Um, you know, the Canadian dollar has been down compared to the U.S. dollar. Um, you were talking about interest rate differential potentially um, in the future between U.S. and Canada. Um, you know, uh, what is the impact kind of that lower dollar might be having on on what you're doing and just maybe generally? And, and do you have any sort of thoughts on how that could play out over the next year? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the so from the, the, I guess, looking at it a couple of ways, the, the weaker currency has actually been um, a bit of a boost to some of the finances of some of the sort of the headline areas of Canada. If you think about the fact like uh, energy producing provinces, um, you know, that that uh, energy producing provinces and energy companies that are selling commodities in U.S. dollars um, and but now earning more Canadian dollars as a result of that. Um, you know, that's been a boost from from that perspective. So it's made things more competitive internationally. Now, the issue is if you have growth slowing down across the board, then, you know, that's going to have an impact on exports and maybe that has less of a benefit to Canada. Um, now, the flip side of it is uh, weaker currency makes it more expensive for Canadians to buy things that are coming from abroad. And so um, and given that the focus on inflation is um, is is front and center right now. Um, that's going to be a, a headwind um, and in terms of making it more difficult for the Bank of Canada to control inflation. So I think that's an element of where I think that, um, you know, Canada is, you know, the Bank of Canada is going to have to be cognizant about that differential and the weakening in the Canadian dollar. Um, but that's, I mean, that's kind of the extent of where I would look at it. I'm not a currency expert, so, um, but I think the Bank of Canada likes it to stay in that range where we're competitive but not to the point where it's it's so weak that it's impacting um, uh, impacting us from uh, from foreign investment and uh, uh, and flows. And just to wrap it up, any last thoughts on the bond market? Just the the, the future, twenty twenty three. What would be your parting words of advice for the advisors uh, listening in? Yeah, I mean, I think as I as kind of the theme of the the whole conversation has been, you know, fixed income is a much more attractive place to be. Um, I think, you know, there's obviously a lot of caution and volatility in the markets broadly, not just in fixed income, but across the board. Um, but fixed income is back to sort of having its attributes of, of playing a role in a, in a diversified portfolio. The outlook for fixed income going forward, given where yields and rates are, um, are, are very attractive um, uh, on a long term basis. And I'll just go back to the other point it's, that I made earlier is it's really difficult to time the market. And when you have historical valuations that look uh, this attractive, um, I think it makes sense to be st to start getting back into fixed income and adding, uh, but keeping your, some dry powder to add as we get more volatility or, or any sort of um, 
uh, turbulence in the markets. And, and we're starting to see that from um, broadly in terms of flows, especially from institutional clients um, that are starting to reallocate to fixed income given uh, how, how much valuations have improved. Great. We will leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for this. Um, that was uh, very insightful and look, looking forward to chatting with you again soon. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.